Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. Now, she may not be a household name, but in her day, Gwen Harwood was recognised worldwide as a great poet. Clive James thought she was Australia's best. Gwen was born in Queensland in 1920 and died in Tasmania in 1995. She had four children and wrote more than 400 poems, as well as being a librettist. She was also a prolific letter writer to her friends. Her correspondence, gathered in a very entertaining anthology called Blessed City, is how I first became aware of her unique combination of the playful and the symbolic, the erudite and the everyday. I was lucky enough to meet Gwen at her home in Hobart in the 1990s, but until I read the remarkable new biography by Anne-Marie Priest, which also happens to be the first, for reasons you're about to discover, I had no idea how complicated her life was, although I did know that she reveled in donning various masks as a literary device. Nor did I realise that the man who cut me a rose from their garden, her husband Bill, was such a negative force in her life. I spoke to Anne-Marie Priest via Zoom at her home in Toowoomba. Gwen Howard was a Queensland-born Tasmanian poet who I think is probably certainly one of the most celebrated of Australian poets and I would say one of the best of the 20th century. But I don't want to have to argue about what's good and what's bad and how you decide best. Her poetry changes quite a bit over the period that she was writing from, let's say, the early 1950s right through to the 1990s. She died in 1995. Her early poetry is quite formal and quite playful and her later poetry becomes, it just becomes more relaxed, more open, more personal, more direct. So by the time you get to the poetry of the last, her last decade, it's as if she's talking straight to you and, and letting you into her inner world, which is one of the things I absolutely love about her, her writing. And it's quite a, a, a large body of work, isn't it? I was looking this morning and I think it's over 400 poems. Is that right? Yes. Yep. And there's many that, that were more informally written that haven't ever been collected as well. Now, what does the title of your book refer to? The short answer is that it was about a woman claiming her own voice in a world, 1950s, 1960s, Australian suburbia, that didn't support women to have their own voice or to speak in the tongue or tongues that they wanted to speak in. And I saw that as both characterising her work but also characterising very much her life. And so I saw it as a moment where she claimed her tongue and that's what I really wanted to bring out. That became the narrative for my, for my biography. Now, I think it's fair to say that, to me at least, the way this biography comes about is almost as interesting as Gwen's life itself because basically one could sum up the biographical project really beginning with the word don't. What was the warning that you got about not taking on this project? What was it about and why did you disregard it? <laughs> yes, I have to say I was very actively discouraged when I first began, but... Uh... Yeah, I first, I'd been working on Gwen as part of a separate project and uh, and I thought at that point that Greg Kratzman was writing the biography. I thought that biography was still underway and I, I contacted him because there were things I wanted to find out about Gwen, which obviously 
were clear from the little bits and pieces that I've been reading, but but were not in any biographical material that was published. And Greg then told me that he wasn't writing a biography and that nobody was writing a biography. This was after several attempts. So, and so that was, well, that's strange, you know. So he, he told me his story and his story was that the literary executor, who is Gwen Harwood's eldest son, John Harwood, would not support a biography that told the truth, all the truth about Gwen's life at that time. And Greg was not prepared to write a biography that, that didn't tell all the truth. So he could have pushed it. He had a, actually had a contract to write the biography. This is in the 90s. And he knew that Gwen wanted him to write it. But at that stage, Bill Howard, Gwen's husband, was still alive. And I think he just decided that it was too hard. So he didn't go ahead. And when I spoke to him, yes, and after I just thought about this for a little while, I kept working on Gwen, I thought, well, maybe, maybe I could write this because I really, really wanted to know. I wanted to know who she was, where this amazing voice had come from, this, this mischievous person that I'd met through her letters. I know, th- through her letters rather than through the poetry, actually the letters took me to the poetry. And, and also, I, you know, it was obvious, well, it seemed obvious to me from the poems that she'd had a lot of loving relationships. And in interviews, you know, people she, people would basically ask her and she would just freeze them out. She was so good at that, as I suspect you might know. She just would just stare them down, basically. <laughs> so I really wanted to know. And so, yeah, so I, I eventually got the courage up and said to Greg, you know, perhaps perhaps I could write the biography. And, and he said, yeah, don't. And <laughs> oh, that must have been an awful moment. <laughs> oh, it was just like, yeah, he was lovely. He was very nice, but he was just like, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. This is a complete hornet's nest. And he had been in, I delicately to put this, he'd been in negotiations about letters that were being deposited in various libraries. And yeah, there was a lot of nasty stuff going on and no, yeah. Again, it's it's all it's all quite a long time ago now, but yeah, I also spoke to Alison Hodenot, who was a good friend of Gwen's for many years. She met she was twenty years younger than Gwen. But she met Gwen when in the fifties when she was nineteen or twenty, and so she was still alive and had and and loved Gwen and had lots of Gwen material and has written a critical book on Gwen and published a collection of her letters and had also once hoped to write a biography and she also was quite discouraging and she said initially she said that when she first went to the National Library to look at Gwen's letters the National Librarian said oh you're writing a biography of Gwen I feel sorry for you (laughs) and And every time I went to see Alison, which is quite a lot later, we became really good friends, she would say that, oh, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> but initially I just thought, all right, because I, so I, I tried my luck. I, I tried to get access to the restricted papers, which are all in the Fry Library at University of Queensland, and I was told no. So, but there were lots of letters there. So I just thought, I'll just have a look. I'll see what's there. I'll read as much as I can. And then, you know, if it doesn't turn into a biography, that's fine. I'll, I'll write some articles. You know, I've got other things I can do with it. But I think I was kind of, I was already sort of like, oh, I really want to do this. So I went, I spent six months in the Friar Library, I had some leave from my job and uh, uh, it was so amazing. You know, archive fever when you start reading. The first letters that I read through were 
the Alison Hodenot letters because she just donated everything and no restrictions to the library. And so, you know, I followed Gwen's, these are Gwen's letters to Alison from, you know, basically from the, from the 60s when Alison left Tasmania right through to Gwen's death. And it was so, it was such an amazing narrative just in itself. I was so drawn in and I was so gruelling going through Gwen's death. I actually hadn't been close to someone who had died at that point. Subsequently I have, but so it was, yeah, it was emotionally, she's, Gwen is such a gifted letter writer. She's so open and she's she was not. There was no kind of, isn't this wonderful? I've reached the summit of my life. And, you know, she was angry. She was resentful. She was sarcastic. And, you know, the letters didn't give you any comfort. I mean, they, except that she it was still her. It was still her going through all this. And she complained like crazy, fair enough, about, about her body and her pain and well, she was dying from cancer. It was awful. But, you know, so I went through that and, you know, I, I felt so connected to her then. But I have to say when I was reading these letters to Alison, in the 80s Alison started writing her book about Gwen, who turned out to be a critical study, and she was asking Gwen lots of questions about her life and Gwen was replying with these kind of long letters. And in one letter they were talking about a poem called Tom the Rhymer, which is actually based on a ballad called Tom the Rhymer, which has the line, my tongue is my own, in it. And she also, Gwen also wrote a poem called My Tongue is My Own. And she says, just offhand, of course, when I wrote that poem, the real Tom had just left and I was a complete mess. She just said something like that and I was like, sorry, what real Tom? This was 57, 58. So all oh, my antenna went up and I raced over the library I rang Greg that night. I was like, so just wondering. And, and he was like, oh, I rang Alison first. And she was like, oh, that was just Gwen being Gwen. She's like, oh, you know, Gwen, I didn't pay any attention to it. She never followed up, never followed up at all. I know. So Alison had no idea about any of it. And so, yeah, when I rang and Greg was like, oh, that's Tom Pick, yeah. And I was like, okay. So he then, it was like this throughout the process, actually. So then he told me, enough for me to be able to follow a few more threads and put a few things together. But in, in those letters to Alison, Gwen actually identified specifically a series of about nine poems that she specifically says related to that affair. And Alison never asked about it or followed up. So, but the letters where she talks about the affair to Tony Riddle were all restricted. So I couldn't access those at that time. What I love about this story is that you are, in effect, the last biographer standing of three. <laughs> but the interesting other dimension to this is the way Gwen, with both Alison and Greg, in a sense, played one off against the other in that she told each of them that they were the only one. So, yes, she did want a biography written, but why did she do that? <laughs> My, uh, my theory is that she really wanted, and Alison used to say this too, she wanted two biographies. She wanted one that would dish the dirt and one that would be respectable and literary and academic. And I, I really think she thought that in between those two she could kind of escape. She, you know, she ah. could be, you couldn't pin her down. She could be one or she could be the other. Choose your Gwen, you know, kind of. That, that's what Alison thought. I do also think that Gwen genuinely changed her mind 
like she would be talking to Greg and she'd be like, of course you can do it. She loved Greg. He was very charming. And, you know, she was like, of course you can write the biography and I'm going to tell you all my secrets. And then we should talk to Alice and Alison would say, but you, you, you said that I could do it. You said I would have access to the letters. Of course you can have access to those. You're my official biographer. Don't worry about what Greg's doing. You know, I think she, she genuinely tried to, to, to please both of them and ended up, of course, pleasing neither of them. Once Alison realised that Gwen was giving Greg access to the letters that she'd promised that only Alison would have access to, she was just like, all right, this isn't going to work. So so she pulled out. She was so mischievous that she even suggested several possible opening paragraphs to one of her biographers. She wrote her own opening <laughs> section, didn't she? <laughs> yes, she did. And I love all of those. And in fact, she was always writing little biographies. What I like about your story about Alison and Greg is the extent to which this is an example of biographers actually helping each other. So, I mean, obviously, having discouraged you initially, they were then very forthcoming and very generous. Yes, yes, they were. Alison in particular felt that it was the right time that a biography be written. And in fact, everybody that I contacted to talk to me about Gwen I always made a point of saying this biography is not authorised. I had approached John by this stage and said I'd like to write a biography explicitly and he'd said we don't support a biography at this time or something. It was, it was pretty curt kind of engagement but and I'd been primed to expect that. So so I told everybody that, that it wasn't going to be authorised. I didn't have the permission of the estate and everybody, poets and people who'd known it, was so like, ah, oh, it's ridiculous. It, it's time for a biography. There should be a biography. The people who knew her are, are passing away. So, And what do you think was John's reason for saying, no, we're not ready yet, given that, as you say, once his father, Bill, was dead, what was the main objection, do you think? I think, I think he was, you know, as he said himself, keeper of the flame. He wanted to he wanted to keep Gwen's reputation pretty much intact as a, yeah. It, she was a kind of a very delightful, very respectable woman in her public persona. And I think he felt that there would be no harm in keeping that, that image of her in perpetuity. But also I know that he, he was worried about causing hurt to people, especially some of the things about the marriage that would come out people who were still alive and or just really good friends of the family or friends of of Bill's yeah he, he was certainly didn't want to cause that kind of hurt. I mean it's it's personal and I can actually I understood right from the start for he didn't know me I mean he didn't know my work I it's the first biography I've ever written I can imagine him thinking you know I'm not gonna let some ham-fisted person trample over my my mother's life I definitely I, I think if he was choosing a biographer it wouldn't have been me that he chose and I mean it's it's your mother's life if, if a complete stranger came and said I'm, I'm going to write the story of your mum you'd be a bit like well I don't know why, why should I why should I let you I, I didn't take it personally I, I I got it I understood but it's interesting because I have to say Anne-Marie that I think that your biography enhances her achievement that given the frustrations of her marriage and the limitations that her marriage, which we'll talk about in a moment, imposed on her. The fact that her imagination could soar and escape that and reach the levels that it did, to me, is a testimony 
to how great she was. And I, I think, and you may disagree with me, that if the executor of her estate had been her daughter, I think her daughter might have thought about this differently and that it, it is because of the messy nature of Gwen's life in terms of the many affairs that she had that might cause a son to feel a certain kind of protective awkwardness that maybe a daughter today would not feel the need to protect or apologise for. I wonder. That's an interesting, interesting theory. I just Gwenda did have a daughter, her youngest child, but I had no way of accessing or, or contacting her. And you know, she's not in the literary world. Or I mean, John, John is. He's he's a writer himself, and he's he was an academic for many years, and he's a novelist and a poet and a very accomplished man. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that that accomplishment in terms of how it runs in the family, because I get the sense, I mean, it's interesting that her son became an academic and a writer, sort of, you know, both Bill was an academic, a scholar, and obviously Gwen, extraordinary talent. But when it comes to her parents, her father was a man who you describe as having the gift of the gab and a man who loved parody. And so she clearly inherited some of her talent from her father, didn't she? Oh, I absolutely think so, yes. To see him when she was very young, so from a young age, to see this person inventing things and, and making up games and word games and using, he loved them, limericks and any anything that was a bit rude, you know, a bit of a joke, a bit of a, a punchline. And for her, all of that was just fun. That was just great, good fun. And I think as a little child, you know, she quickly wanted to be part of that, inventing things, making up things. And even from, from primary school, she was making up little poems at school. And Greg told me, because he spoke to some of her school friends, and unfortunately there were none left when I, when I got there, but he said that they all still remembered the poems and could recite the, the, the ditties that she had composed in, in year 11 and 12 at the girls' grammar school. So she was always using poetry to to entertain and I actually think that makes her quite unusual as a poet you know that we, we think of poetry as reaching deep into your soul and expressing your deepest needs and things but there was really a public and communicative dimension to her writing and to her personality which which I love that it was a way of communicating and it was a way of entertaining like she really saw a professional dimension to this and and just her exuberance her sheer linguistic exuberance is just a joy. Well, I guess that she was something of a performer by nature, wasn't she? Because also like her father, she was musical and music was in fact her first love and her first thought of a possible career. Yes, yes. And she always said that she wasn't nervous when she performed, that it wasn't, you know. So I think in some ways, yeah, she did feel very at home on the stage. And yeah, perhaps in a different world, she might have had a different career. Who knows? But yeah, I, it's the way she's kind of oriented outwards in, in some ways towards towards others, towards being received by others or and sometimes towards bludgeoning others, you know, she certainly, but, but definitely that outward orientation in her as a performer and, and as a poet, I think, very much. Yeah, I mean, her father didn't have the discipline that she had. It, I, I, yeah, but I think that that, that, creativity that he constantly exemplified is what she is is his gift to her and then she was the one who learned 
all the craft of poetry and she was a real stickler for forms and, and doing it properly and learning the proper way to do it. And so she brought those two things together and that's where the magic happened. At this point, I thought it'd be nice for you to hear Gwen reading one of her most famous poems, Barn Owl, written in 1975 and widely anthologized and taught. This is a recording from the archive of the ABC's Poetica. Daybreak. The household slept. I rose, blessed by the sun. A horny fiend, I crept out with my father's gun. Let him dream of a child obedient, angel mild, old no-sayer robbed of power by sleep. I knew my prize, who swooped home at this hour with daylight-riddled eyes to his place on a high beam in our old stables to dream light's useless time away. I stood, holding my breath in urine-scented hay, Master of life and death. A wisp-haired judge whose law would punish beak and claw. My first shot struck. He swayed, ruined, beating his only wing as I watched afraid by the fallen gun. A lonely child who believed death clean and final. Not this obscene bundle of stuff that dropped and dribbled through loose straw tangling in bowels and hopped blindly closer. I saw those eyes that did not see mirror my cruelty, while the wrecked thing that could not bear the light nor hide hobbled in its own blood. My father reached my side, gave me the fallen gun. End what you have begun. I fired. The blank eyes shone once into mine and slept. I leaned my head upon my father's arm and wept, owl blind, in early sun, for what I had begun. What do you think she inherited from her mother? You describe her mother as redoubtable. This is Agnes. Agnes, I know. And they they really were in conflict when Gwen was in her 20s. And so it it's hard to remember or it's hard to see that, they, that there were times when they weren't. They didn't really get along very well throughout adulthood, although Agnes was always there for her and came when she had her children and she loved Gwen loved to have her there to help out. So it wasn't as if they were really fighting, but she, she in Blessed City, in the, in the letter she wrote when she was in her 20s, she was always complaining about Agnes because she's so material, she's materialistic. She's out in the community because Agnes is a committee woman. She would have been a politician today without doubt. She was excellent at, again, connecting with others. She was always holding fundraisers and she was a member of a zillion different charitable organizations and she was on all these committees and but it wasn't kind of wholly virtuous you know holier than thou kind of work it was it was being part of this community and she was fighting she's always she's always engaged in these stouches 
with other members of the committee and and well I would say that that Gwen inherited that too actually Anne-Marie because when you think to later on in her life when she becomes embroiled in a scandal at the church at her local (laughs) church in Hobart at All Saints that's exactly like her mother Exactly. Yes. When I saw her getting involved in those committees and the same kind of sweeping out in, in taking umbrage and writing these notes with Dr. Gwen Harwood on them because she never used her titles, you know, it's just like, oh my goodness, it is, it's that, that kind of drama world of the small committee where everything is life or death. And, but it's funny, that was her grandmother too, because I just, funny, when I started work on this, because I live in Rockhampton in central Queensland, I didn't know that Gwen's mum actually grew up here in Rockhampton and that, that I drive past Jaggard Street every morning on my way to work and Jaggard is the name of her of her um, grandmother, Gwen's grandmother and grandfather. But the grandmother, which is Maud, who that Gwen was very close to. There are letters published in the Morning Bulletin, which is our local newspaper here, in the just at the close of the war, so around 1919, where she's taking the mayor to task for comments that he's <laughs> made about return servicemen and her work. And she is just so haughty and she's just using all this, if the mayor thinks that I should not, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's it's really, you know, how dare he? And, and, and this goes back and forth. And I've just read that and I just read these letters from Gwen about the church and I was just like oh my goodness it's in the genes but yeah definitely yeah. that that idea of getting your own and holding your own very much there in those women it's so women. tell me where you think she gets her sort of moral compass from because I'm very struck by the fact that she was quite defiant of convention quite early on or maybe she was just an experimenter or maybe she was just curious but the fact of the matter is that she became her piano teacher's lover when she was 17 and he was 50 and she did not feel a skerrick of guilt about the fact that he was married so where does she get that from? Yeah that's something I really I really pondered because one of the things that very first struck me when I first read the first letters I read were the Blessed City ones was just how unconventional she was. Just how, mm. and it just where did this come from? How does a, a child brought up in you know cons- well, in Brisbane in the in the twenties become this outspoken, really unconventionally thinking woman? So I, my guess is with that, with the morality. I mean, because she was Christian. I mean, as they all were, and she actually converted. I mean, she was she was raised in a Christian family. Her, her, her grandmother was very religious, so she would have been religious herself up until about twelve. She says, and then she refused to go to church anymore, and and kind of dropped it all. And then at seventeen, she actually had an intensely religious phase, a conversion, and then and joined the church and was baptized as an adult. So, if you think about that conventional Christian morality, which says no sex outside of marriage and adultery and you know fornication, it's all sinful. But she seems to have just not just not taking that on just like that's just hypocrisy that I I really think that she looked around and saw and from the earliest childhood she was an observer she saw how people actually behaved and especially she was very alert to undercurrents and to secrets and to the, the sexual arcing of desire and, and passion and and of course in those days and right through until these days there was especially with professional men especially with music, musicians and and artists there was a lot of 
behaviour that we would consider pretty unacceptable today. There was a lot of flirtation, a lot of bottom pinching and, you know, and it was, and squeezing and it was considered fairly normal in those days. And, but I think that Gwen really embraced that. She saw it as, again, part of all this good fun. I think her father was one of those men and she just saw it as, you know, everyone's in high spirits and we're all having a wonderful time. And, and, and so she knew that the men that she met and a lot of the men who leered over her, she's often writes about this comically in letters when she was, you know, 14 or 15, she knew they were married. She knew they were highly respectable men. So she thought, okay, so the sexual part of it doesn't really, it's just, everyone's just saying that. It's just lip service. That's that's my best guess. She doesn't actually say that. But I also think, because she became a very passionate reader of John Donne, who's a 17th century religious metaphysical poet, a priest, and his poetry has sometimes been called the most erotic in the English language. And he makes desire and sexual desire holy but not in a not in a holy way but normal a, a, a normal expression of the body of the self and the ultimate expression of of the soul and i see that attitude that idea all throughout gwen's life the idea that there's absolutely nothing wrong with sexuality and sexual expression of love and in fact far from being the opposite of the soul it's the incarnation of the expression of the soul so I really think that between looking at her culture and she's just so smart, she just was like, okay, people say this, but they don't really mean it. And then, you know, getting this theology, funnily enough, instead of picking up the sex is wrong thing, she picked up the sex is natural, sex is spiritual, sex is God kind of thing. And I, I, I think she had that view pretty much her whole life. But she, even in, the, in her mid-20s, early 20s, when she first got together with Bill, she was saying, that you can love more than one person at a time and that love given to one person is not love taken from another person. And that attitude too was extremely, it is still extremely radical. A lot of people would want to disagree with that. (laughs) It is radical and it's also unfortunate that she married a man who was so jealous and so controlling and possessive that rather than embracing those values of hers, he constrained her in every way. I'll just come to that in a moment because first she falls in love with a curate, <laughs> Peter Beatty, and then she falls in love with Bill. And Bill is a naval officer. She claims to have fallen in love with him at first sight. Oh my God. I mean, he is such a disastrous character for her to collide with. But I'm curious about something. You say that she's happy with Bill and that their sex life was good. And I wanted to ask you, how do you know that? She says it in letters. She actually makes a point of saying it sometimes to Tony. Like she'll actually say, look, uh, Bill is driving me mad. We have nothing in common. We should never have got married. But we're still, sexually, we're still very compatible. She'll actually use that phrase or, or close, close to that. She also told Greg, and Greg told me, he said even right towards the end of their marriage, they were still having a good sex life. So I I don't know. Yeah. I find that really extraordinary to contemplate given how arid their engagement was intellectually and how much contempt he felt for her as she became more successful as a poet and the more she was showered with awards and recognition and invitations, 
the more he dismissed and and ignored her achievement. I mean, in in a really, I think, ghastly way. Yes, yes. It was like studied indifference, uh, actually, is a phrase that somebody recently who knew them mentioned, to, used to me. It's just like this person was telling me that she she was at a lunch or at lunch with them one day and Gwen got a letter when the mail came in saying that she'd won something or that she'd had some award and she was literally dancing around and Bill was just reading the paper, didn't look didn't look up, didn't say anything. The whole table was like, oh, that's amazing, you know, and he was just completely ignoring it as if it was not happening. So that gives you a... It's a, it's a kind of passive aggression that I would say was verging on abuse. Yes. Today that marriage looks quite different, I think, than it did at the time. I've had a few people use the term coercive control. Yes. For his relationship. But that, of course was not a term that was known at all in those days. And in some ways, that was actually the norm, the standard for marriage. The husband was the head of the household. He did control the money. He did decide what the wife could do and what she couldn't do. I mean, that was all accepted. And, and but he pushed that to such an extreme. Remember the moment when she gets a grant and the moment she gets a grant, he cuts off her allowance. This is a woman who is scrabbling around to find the money to post her poems to editors and who is scavenging paper to write on. And he has an academic salary. I mean, for God's sake. <laughs> I, know. I know. It is really sad. And she is furious about it in, in her letter. That's definitely that one. She had the someone we haven't mentioned yet, Zan Jennings, her, her female, cl- probably closest female friend. And t- to Anne, she will say things like that, like, she she calls him old Scrooge and old Noah because he built boats and and she's just like uh, he wouldn't give me a penny you know to help etc. So but she also realizes that he he does have a bit of a problem with money like him, himself is he, it's one of his points of anxiety and 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 tension so you know but yeah I know it is so infuriating that he just had no generosity towards her. And also the opportunities that his work brought him to leave Tasmania. So basically he takes Gwen to Tasmania. He has a job there and she hates it. And I'm wondering whether you can explain what it was that she hated so much about Tasmania and whether that ever really changed. (laughs) Alison told me that she was interviewing her for the NLA once and... And she, for the National Library. The National Library, yes, sorry, and uh, was being recorded. And, of course, Alison knew how much, this was in the late 80s, she knew how much Gwen hated Tasmania. And she said, and so how do you feel about Tasmania? And she said Gwen just stuck her tongue out at her because she couldn't see. And then she was like, oh, Tasmania is my home. My children have grown up here. It's a lovely place. And Alison said to her afterwards, why didn't you say? She said, well, I have to live here. And, yeah, so the short answer there is, I think she hated it. I mean, she probably she's probably exaggerating a little when she looks back. She says she hated it from the moment she kind of set foot there. I don't think it would have been quite like that. But you've got to imagine her beautiful open life in, in Brisbane 
this sunshine, verandas, she slept on the veranda. It was all open, but that openness to me represents a freedom that she had in her life there too, where she lived with her mom and dad. She wasn't responsible for anything. She obviously helped a lot. They all worked hard, but but she could come and go. She had heaps and heaps of friends. She had lots of boyfriends. She had people coming over. She had music. She it was she could do whatever she liked. It was this beautiful free world and to her that was all connected with the sunshine and the fruit you know the mangoes and the and the the, the beautiful seafood it was just became this this paradise in her mind but it's it's not just the place it was the life she was living which she didn't realize was so good until she got to Tasmania and she felt like she'd been locked up because I mean you know Hobart is in the shadow of that mountain and it's dark you know it, and they were living on the side of the mountain where she says it got dark at two o'clock in the afternoon in winter or between two and three. You know, it's just, and she, they didn't have a car. They didn't, have a, they didn't even have a wireless when they were first there. They didn't have, you know, she had no, they would drive off, well, drive off, yeah, she caught the bus off down the, down to the university every day. And she was just stuck up there with no company. She didn't know anyone. And it was dark and cold and she was that cottage was very rustic let's say it didn't have any mod cons when she used to do the washing and you know her fingers would freeze when she was hanging up hanging out the clothes and so suddenly she didn't have there was no light there was no music there were no friends her parents weren't there so I think that that in itself those first I mean she she had Bill then and they were madly in love and so it was that would have been enough at that stage and then she was pregnant with her first child which she was really happy about and excited about so that would have got her over that but essentially I think her whole life Tasmania was constraint it was being locked up and you see that the voice of that in in many of her poems that I, I can't break out. I want to break out, but I can't break out. And so to me, those states of mind were projected onto those places. There's obviously nothing innately terrible about either Tasmania and nothing innately glorious about about Queensland. You could be happy or unhappy in either. But I mean, yeah, I, I think she was a she was a child of the north, so she never adapted to the cold. She had um. I can't think, a Raynaud's disease, which caused her fingers to swell and, and to be extremely painful. The blood flow was cut off to her fingers and, you know. But to me it was it was the loss that came on her marriage, came after her marriage that she associated with Tasmania and she would have loved to escape both Tasmania and the marriage, I think. Now, she has a, a great close friend, Tony Riddell, and she later credits his friendship with saving her, by which I presume he, she means her sanity. And she also says, you quote her saying, without you, there would have been no poems. So can you tell us a little bit about Tony Riddell? Yeah, I've, I've come to see him as a bit of a tragic figure, actually. But he was a, a naval lieutenant. He had a master's degree in literature I think it was literature and he was an extremely talented young man he was a sportsman uh, like a runner I think somebody told me that he'd, he'd actually been in the Commonwealth Games when they were in Brisbane but I couldn't find a record of that but he was extremely extremely talented he was a brilliant actor apparently a lovely singer and a, a great writer he wanted to be a poet he wanted to write plays you know he had the whole world at his feet and he was handsome and they went into the, he and Bill both ended up in the arm um, in the Navy 
because having a master's degree, they were both brought into cryptology. They didn't have to go off as, as grunts. So, but he didn't obviously didn't want to be there in the Navy. So he was a little bit angsty at that point. And he met Gwen through their mutual friend, Peter Benny. And Gwen just, he was very handsome as well, of course, and charming. And Gwen just fell, I think she fell in love with him. It's pretty clear from the letters. Mm. And, you know, he he wanted to sing and she would play the piano accompaniments for Schubert, for Leader, which is just so romantic for Gwen and, and just a joy to do. And But Tony, of course, was gay. And in those days it was illegal and, and besides it was so culturally unacceptable and and invisible. Gwen later said that she didn't know there was such a thing. She didn't know there was homosexuality, which is possible, I think. Yeah. So she didn't know, but he so he was had this part of himself that he always had to keep hidden and had to keep secret. And he was unhappy when it looked as if he should have been happy. But to Gwen and she says this many, many years later, it seemed to her that Tony and Peter were destined for greatness. They were geniuses. They were the ones who were going to be the great poets. They were all writing poetry. But Tony supported her poetry, took an interest in her poetry, wanted to see what she was writing, wanted to see her stories, shared his stories with her. And this was before she and Bill got married during the war. And being treated as a writer, being part of that little community of both of them writing and Frank Kellaway was another friend who was also writing and they were sending their poetry out for acceptance and even though initially she was like, oh, that's so vulgar, you know, you don't send your poetry out, the world comes to you kind of thing. But when Frank got a poem accepted in Mianjin, which had just started and he got 10 shillings for it, I think it was 10 shillings, she was just like, I can't believe, like, if, he, if I gave him 10 shillings, they're damn well going to give me 10 shillings. So she sent off a poem as well. And that was accepted. And she got her 10 shillings. So, but that was, uh, so at that stage, it looked as if she could be a writer with them, like the three of them or the four of them, you know, Peter Benny, they were all writing, all trying to publish. And I think that Tony, he was always supportive of her work. He always had very high artistic standards, but he always saw her as living up to them. Peter Benny was not so supportive. He was like, you know, you can do better. He, and it makes me kind of grimace now because I feel like his own poetry is so turgid. Sorry, Peter. Well, rest, God rest your soul. But, you know, and the idea that this man presumed to shape and, and comment on the work of, of, of Gwen when she was, you know, 22, admittedly, her, you know, she had a, a journey to take too. But, you know, it's just like he wasn't in her league. And no. And neither was Tony, probably. But, but yeah, so. But- but the friendship the friendship was very important to her as is evidenced by their correspondence and by the intensity of their shared feelings and bill will not have a bar of it and bill insists that she break off this relationship that she not see him that she not communicate with him and amazingly she acquiesces can you talk me through the way she caves on that and and then reneges on it. I mean, she goes behind Bill's back. <laughs> she does, <laughs> which is very Gwen, actually, wanting to please everybody. I think that she, she, she certainly, it's, what's so interesting about those letters, and just as a side note, when Blessed City was published, those letters were, were all cut out and that was a big, that was one of the big secrets about why that wasn't known. And so when I discovered, when I first read, Alison had all the letters she showed me when I first read those letters, it, 
that revealed so much to me about the marriage and about Gwen and Tony. But yeah, what I So think- you mean the fact that they had continued their correspondence despite the fact that she had promised Bill? No, not- the fact of the promise being asked and given. That was all of that right. was left out completely. Yeah, that okay. that was that was censored. Yeah, they they couldn't have that in there because it seemed, in retrospect, it seemed so outrageous and it didn't reflect well on Bill and Gwen said, if that gets published, my marriage will be over. So, yeah, they decided not to publish those letters. So it it wasn't known that he'd done this. It wasn't known that there'd been this big gap in in the correspondence between Tony and Gwen that was never spoken of. So... Read it first in my biography, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so it, it's to me it's highly significant, as you say, because to Tony she she was shaping herself in those letters to him. She wrote to him every day, sometimes two or three times a day from from her office where she wasn't <laughs> doing a lot of work, and, <laughs> and 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 she really, you know, you know how in letters you, you can find your best self, you present your most ideal self, and I think that's what they both did, you know. So they met in this as their very best selves colliding they didn't have any of the the grottiness of every day and so it was so important to create that that space to imagine and dream and create with each other and yeah so when Bill said you've got to stop writing to him she was just you know she was she just she was just thought she said to Tony he'll get over it it's just a it's just a, a, a glitch you know yeah but if it, I think what happened is she really fell for the romantic love line which is that, and she says, you know, love asks everything and the true lover gives everything. I will hold nothing back. The language is so much the language of Christian mysticism, funnily enough, where the lover gives everything to God. I will have nothing separate from you. I, your wishes will be my wishes. Your will will be my will. And that might work in a mystical relationship with Christ, but probably more of a problem in an actual relationship with an actual person. But I, honestly, you know, those feelings of love can be so exalted and exalting. She couldn't, you know, I think she was, and but they both were genuinely swept up in this passion. This is her and Bill. I don't think they saw each other clearly. You know, they projected their desires and their their ideals onto each other because they looked the part. I think she genuinely felt that it was not too much to ask, that nothing was too much to ask, was to, to give up everything for the beloved. But later on, by the time she's had her children in the 60s, she does become aware of feminism. And I'm wondering what impact you think feminism had on her as a woman, as a mother, as a wife, and as a poet. Yeah, a big one. The thing about Gwen is she had what we would consider feminist views quite early, like when she kind of emerged from the love haze in her marriage and started to really objectively look at her situation and looked at the situation of women around her, she was quite critical of not not just on a personal level. It wasn't just, you know, my husband won't let me. It's this is how wives are treated. This is what it's like to be a wife. She didn't try to change it, but she does beautiful you would think feminist-inspired critiques of marriage as an institution before there were actually feminist critiques of marriage as an institution, certainly in the 50s. Like her poems about being a housewife and about constraint and being 
being losing a part of yourself in in having to to shut everything down just to be there for your children and for your husband those poems are way ahead of their time that was before before you know the the female eunuch and other she did read those classic works of feminism later and yeah but i can tell too that as society was changing she became more confident with expressing those views she certainly her friend Anne Jennings, she certainly, who, who left her marriage and claimed a life for herself. It's kind of an alternate self for Gwen, a life she might have had if she'd only been bold. I was curious about the fact that unless I've missed it, I don't think you tell us what her politics were. Okay. She was fairly left-wing. She was certainly in favour of Whitlam and certainly against Fraser. And, but I mean, because of Whitlam, it's hard to realise. But those writers' grants were the first. That was that was the legacy of, of of the Whitlam government. So it actually had a huge impact on her. But she was always satirical about everything. So she gives everybody a good poke in terms of <laughs> politically. But yeah, she was she was on the left, and she and Bill both rather than on the right. But she, of course, had her moments, as everybody does. With yeah. With both, I mean, Jim McCauley and and Peter Benny, both really important men in her life. They were both very right wing, and she really disliked that. But she said having teenagers in the sixties broke down her adhesions. She says so that whole kind of she loved the whole free love and sex, drugs, and rock and roll culture of the seventies. So and I she think, did, yeah. didn't she? She did. Yeah. She did sound as if she found all of that quite liberating, which it's sort of difficult to imagine her embracing all of that. But occasionally she would use a phrase that came from the world <laughs> of rock music or from the world of sort of hippie jargon. And it, it was quite jarring and funny to think of Gwen doing that. But I expect that she was such a sort of able mimic that she probably just borrowed like a bowerbird from any oh. language that she wanted. Exactly. Yes, she was so good at picking picking things. Yeah, I mean, one of the things like in her letters that really struck me is she she uses the rhythmical structure of Bob Dylan's "The Times They Are Changing" and writes her own verses to that. She does that like at least three times, and it's so spot on. Like the way she does it, it's just perfect. At the core of her personality is this mischievous donning of masks and hiding behind pseudonyms and also playing literary pranks. So some of her pseudonyms were Walter Lehman, Francis Geyer, Miriam Stone, Thomas Crote, Timothy Klein. Can you, there are too many really for us to discuss, but can you maybe pick out a couple of examples of what these pseudonyms allowed her to do and about her particular appetite for literary hoaxes, which were enjoying a kind of heyday anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think she started it. I mean, Ern Malley was 10 or 12, 15 years earlier. But yeah, when she first started using pseudonyms, it was literally just her poems weren't getting published. She was getting really, really fed up. She felt like she was writing. Her work was just as good as the stuff that was getting published. She didn't want to make really high claims for it, but it was just as good as stuff that was getting published. She was just getting so annoyed that her work kept coming back. And, you know, some writers look inwards and become depressed. 
She looked outward and got really angry. So initially she just said to Tony, you make up a name and send it from your address so they won't know that it's me because she felt that it was because it was coming from Mrs. Harwood in Tasmania that nobody wanted to publish it. Like, who's Mrs. Harwood in Tasmania? We don't care about her. She's a housewife. So Tony, in fact, invented Walter Lehman. He came up with the name. That was her very first pseudonym. Oh, well, there was one before that, an anagram, but that never got published. So, but once Walter sprang into being, her imagination just immediately seized on him and she could, you know, he became a person to her. And once she kind of had that, she could write poems as him. So they were actually different than the poems that she would write as herself. I mean, and I think that happened with all of them. And once you realise how freeing it was to be able to write as someone else, she just embraced it. She loved it. And it, there was a time there where she was like, I'm creating a new pseudonym every year, you know, so, and that would get discovered and, you know, and then people were trying to smoke her out all the time. So, so yeah, with Walter. And I it's mean, significant, isn't it, that only one of those pseudonyms is in fact female, that there is only Miriam Stone, all the others are men, because she obviously still thinks that she's going to get past the gatekeepers if they're, if, if she's writing as a man. Yes, and as a European man too, like Walter Lehmann and Francis Geyer. Francis Geyer is supposed to be a Hungarian musician, a migrant, you know. He's got to be taken seriously. So, yeah, with Miriam Stone, she says she chose a woman because no one will expect me to be a woman. She was just like, I'll, I'll sneak under the, under the gatekeeper that way. But one of the things that she did, her most outrageous feminist poems of the early 60s were published by Walter, by Walter Lehmann. And certainly in the park, which is one of her most famous poems, anthologized endlessly. She got really sick of it. And she heard, overheard people saying, oh, no woman could write like that. They wouldn't have the, <gasps> they wouldn't have that hard edge to be able to bring that, you know, that critical punch to it, that objectivity. So and she loved that. Like, you think a woman couldn't write that? Well, a woman did write that. So so she was losing that when she wrote as Miriam Stone and she created Miriam Stone as a woman with all the sorrows of the world because she had a child. And But, yeah, it didn't really, it didn't work as well. We did initially, she's, it's so funny, Wheels Within Wheels, because one of the, one of the editors that had rejected her in the past was Vincent Buckley and she hated him with a passion and then she loved him with a passion after she met him and he became the editor of the Bulletin. So she was sending him poems under the Miriam Stone name and he didn't know that. So he was writing to Miriam and encouraging her, telling her that her work was quite good but she needed to, you know, work on this and work on that. I know. And she, she's good friends with Vincent. So she, you know, she's very naughty but he actually did tweak, he said. It was, you know, he 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 was just like, no, this must be Gwen. No one else can write like this. But she did have a streak of kind of malice, didn't she, which wanted to actually publicly humiliate editors who had rejected her. I'm thinking of Vincent in particular. So maybe you'd like to tell the story of the famous acrostic. <laughs> across the yeah oh she did I agree she definitely did have malice you can't read the letters from the late 50s and early 60s and not realize that this was a woman who was furious and wanted to get her own back but you know I I, I just can't help but think of it as this row of turned backs these men in their suits she, she couldn't get in you know I see this little red-headed woman trying to peer over and just yeah I just couldn't get into the citadel 
And because all the men, as she gradually came to understand, Australian literature was very small then, still small, but they all knew each other. A lot of them, like Vincent Buckley, A.D. Hope, Jim McCauley, they were all, some of them had been at university together. They had social relationships. They they kept in touch. They supported one another. They wrote reviews of each other's work. They gave each other lectures. It was a club. It was was a a club. club. Yeah. And it, it wasn't just them, but they're the three that she had the most to do with. And she was she, you know, she she really wanted to blow them up. She wanted to make a space for herself in there somehow. And that Douglas Stewart, at the, he was then the editor at the Bulletin, and he hadn't accepted a single thing that she had sent him for years and years and years. I think she might have had one poem accepted there like some time ago, but it wasn't a very good poem, she says, one, one of her kind of, you know, acorns and poetry landscape kind of things. So when she got... Walter Lehman, she sent she sent six poems straight off to the bulletin and Douglas Stewart took all of them, all six. He'd never taken anything <laughs> of hers before. And so she was exultant. But but you know, if she really wanted to, she didn't come out and say, no, 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 I tricked you. You know, she she told her friends, she told Tony, but she didn't make a big deal of it. She just kept going. So and she she noted down who's taking whom, but she she did really want to show them up. So that she actually had started quite early writing acrostic poems. She used to write them to her friends as well all the time where she would she would actually write like a phrase such as happy birthday, you know, and then you would the first word, the first letter of each line would would, would spell out that phrase. So she Perfectly. actually qu- Yes. Yes. So she quite early had decided that she would write one that said fuck all editors and she called it the fuck all sonnet. And <laughs> I know it just happens to have 14 letters, which is how many you need for a sonnet, how many lines. So she, she wrote that and then, yeah, she wrote very di- lots of different versions of it and also, yeah, and, and she, she would send that out and it came back. She really wanted to get Christensen at Mianjin because she felt like he was so condescending and, and he'd rejected her for years, but he was starting to accept her by this stage. So he was a little bit hurt when he realised that he'd been a target. But he, he was too smart for her. He just like, nah, it's not good poetry. But her theory was that you could not write a good poem that was an acrostic because you, you couldn't write a good poem that was just based on, you know, like a mathematical idea basically. So, yeah, she sent that into the bulletin and, yeah, and then that she's actually, I'll, I'll cut out some of the middle bits of the of the hoax just to make the story a bit more manageable. But, yeah, she sent that one and another one that said So Long Bulletin and they were, it's a beautiful pair of sonnets, Abelard to Eloisa and Eloisa to Abelard, which are the medieval lovers and it's very, the diction's very high and exalted and it seems like, you know, this medieval theme of lost love, etc. But, of course, yeah, you read downwards, one says fuck all editors and one says So Long Bulletin and they, according to the person who was actually acting as literary editor at the time, whose names just escaped me. They needed a space to fit. They had a space to fill at the last minute on the literary pages and he just grabbed the first two poems on the pile. Okay. And they were set and they the bulletin went out and they didn't even let Gwen know that they were going to be there. And then, of course, she was reading the bulletin very regularly to see and then, yeah, so she saw it and then she was just waiting for the explosion and it just didn't happen like days you know, one day passed, two days passed, three days passed, and then, and then finally somebody noticed, and it was such a scandal to say at this stage. This was published under the name Walter Lehman, not under Gwen's name, but 
to say the word fuck, to print the word fuck in those days. It was they, an obscenity. It was a crime. It was a crime. Yes, exactly. So it, uh, the, the the crime squad, the, the yeah, that came. And, I think they were the vice squad, were they? Yeah, or the, the vice squad. squad. I can't remember. The vice squad. That's right. The vice squad, yeah, came and grilled them for hours in the, in the bulletin's office and there was talk of it being a plot to bring down the bulletin and a, a revenge for the sacking of something and Quinn was just like you know the communists were doing it it was just yeah but she sat tight at that stage she'd become friends with Vincent Buckley and he unbeknownst to her was in negotiations to take over the role of poetry editor at the bulletin so he was talking to them and she thought that he would explain and and stand up for her and, and and he had her back but in the end he so he collaborated with the uh, probably with Donald Horn, the, the editor of the Bulletin, on a little piece once once it had all come out and they knew that it was Taz's housewife and, and the whole of Australia took a collective gasp that a, a woman would even know such a word, let alone say it. And, um, yeah, and, and they wrote a really nasty, snide little piece about lady poets and their, their fantasies, yeah, and about how what can be what what is there is to be achieved by by using the pages of the bulletin to scroll a, a coarse word we we do not know and you know it's it was all very snippy and she was absolutely furious when she saw that and at that point she decided Vincent Buckley must die and she had him in her sights from then on even though they were friends she when he was the editor she was constantly tricking him <laughs> and he got done several times which is really funny but. But then she came out and made a statement. Up until then she'd been sort of pulling her punches a bit because that's the difference between her and the other hoaxes. You know, Jim McCauley and Harold Stewart who did the Ernmally hoax, I mean, they wrote uh, like about 18 poems over a, a, a day or a night and, and and they were published as the Irv of Ernmally. But they made, they, they wrote a manifesto. They had, you know, the state of poetry and this is a serious literary experiment. I remember that phrase in particular. Whereas with Gwen it was just a jeu d'esprit. It was just a, a yeah. little a prank. You know, she didn't get the status of this was a serious hoax. And I think it's partly because she didn't actually come out and say, although yeah, she didn't say, look, there's a problem here. These editors mm-hmm. are excluding people. They don't actually they're not publishing on the basis of good work or bad work. They just they don't know. As she said, they wouldn't know a poem from a bunyip's ass. And, yeah, but but that didn't get picked up. That story didn't get picked up. There was just this sense of Tasmanian housewife, rude word. Anne-Marie, I was interested in, in your approach in that you quote quite a lot of Gwen's accounts of her own dreams. And I was wondering, I mean, she obviously found remembering her own dreams important and obviously she must have been paying attention to them from the point of view of their symbolism. What do you think the dreams add in terms of your work as a biographer? That's such a good question. Because when I first, one of the things that Alison first pointed me to was a dream journal that Gwen had kept. And she said, nobody else has looked at this, you know, you've got to look at it. And yeah, it was exciting. And it was in the fryer and it wasn't restricted, but and it was it's from the early 50s. In fact, I think the earliest dream might be 46. So it was because the, there's nothing in her own writing between, you know, of, of her own between about 45 and 55 or 52, 53. There's a gap in the first year, the first couple of years of her marriage. So I was excited to even get that. But 
she does recount the dreams, but just sporadically. She starts off like all of us with a diary with every day and then it becomes, you know, once every few months and then once every few years. And But she she tells the dreams and they're quite, you know, interesting like dreams can be. But she, there's no, she never draws the significance. She never reflects on what this might mean. She never talks about the symbolism. It's so frustrating. She doesn't even give the affect of the dream, like the feeling of it sometimes. She doesn't say she woke up feeling terrified or feeling frightened or feeling joyous. She just tells you the dream as if the dream had some meaning, which would be self-evident. But, yeah, I actually found it. It's tempting to try to psychoanalyze the dreams, but what? criteria could I possibly use to do that you know I could just I remember saying to Alison because she was like oh you know you've got this amazing resource for me yeah but what can I do with it you know what what is the status of dreams as a biographical artifact like I I really felt a bit stymied by that she does use dreams as the basis of poems often and she you're so right she believed they were really important and she did record dreams and I remember her giving someone advice a poet saying that dreams are important to all writers and that you can learn to remember your dreams you just have to write them down as soon as you wake up and then after a while you will remember them because your, your brain will you know so she she considered it important enough to tell someone else how to do it and she certainly did did do it her whole life but what the significance I you know, I could I could construct a, a story from the dreams about how she felt about her life, but how could I possibly validate that? I mean, it, it is nothing consistent. There's a lot of crazy elephants and, you know, a, a lot of dreams about death, a lot of dreams of horror. And I think she was, I say this in the book, she was just such a highly imaginative child. And so images in particular would just strike straight into her. And, yeah, dreams about death, it's- lots it's interesting for you to admit the frustration of, you know, wow, this is a discovery. I've got this dream diary and then I don't really know what to do with it. But on another point, biographers obviously always hope for a revelation, a cache of letters, a secret or something new that they can reveal or uncover. And you certainly do that, as you've already said, in terms of explaining the complexities of the secret friendship that she maintained with Tony after Bill had forbidden it. But there is, at the end of her life, there is another relationship. At what point did you realise that you had another secret or revelation that you could share in the biography? (laughs) Yeah, it took me a while, actually, because... The, the letters that I would call the love letters were not in the fryer and Greg didn't have them and hadn't seen them, I believe. Greg did say that there was someone important, he thought, in, in Gwen's last years, but he wouldn't. As I said, he, he drip-fed me. If I found something, he would confirm it, but he, he didn't, didn't actually say, look, here are all the secrets, go for it. But it was um, my... After I got the Hazel Rolly, I, I spent three months in Tasmania. You got Thank the Hazel Rolly Fellowship, yeah. Yes, and, and I should actually, it was so, it's so important to have that little bit of money made such a difference. And plus the, the affirmation, the confirmation, I thought, okay, I'm, I actually am going to have to write the biography now. Like it's definitely happening. I can't equivocate anymore. But, yeah, when I was there I, I met this woman, Rosemary, because she was a friend of Gwen's and she had some letters and she had some letters and I met her 
she she gave me her letters just to look at obviously not to keep and I read them and it was fairly obvious then that there was this was an unusual friendship shall we say and yeah Rosemary was why are you why are you, why are you being coy here now there's a sudden change in your tone of voice there's <laughs> something going on here <laughs> I, I, because Rosemary is obviously still living and I want to protect her privacy and her right to tell the story the way she wants to tell it and so I'm I'm weighing my words because I don't want it over I don't I don't want to impose my view of this on her view of it if you know what I mean but you do give us her full name I mean she is identifiable yes and I asked her about that and when she's she wanted to think about it and I told her that I could create a character that would be you know for her I could leave her in and she honestly she really thought about it and we talked about it. I didn't pressure her. In fact, I would have preferred to do that, to give her that privacy. But she wanted, she said she felt it was important that the, the whole story is told about Gwen. But also she wanted to claim her place, I think, in Gwen's life, that it, it was an important relationship. And, yeah, she she could have chosen to be anonymous and she didn't. She she chose to, to have that out there. But I did I, I gave her the chapter that concerned her to read and to vet. So I was happy to, I, I was only going to publish something that she was happy with. So the, those letters were, were beautiful and were shocking to me uh, because how could I not know about this? And I have to say that other people who knew Gwen at that time and who knew Rosemary have been, have also said to me that was the biggest surprise because they'd seen them together and felt that it was just a, a lovely intergenerational friendship and, you know, nothing, thought nothing of it. So, yeah, that but was... But they were, they were, in fact, lovers. Yes, yes. And it is, a, it is a theme, in fact, when I think about it now and think about several of the other love affairs that we haven't had time to touch on, that actually... Gwen had a complete disregard for age in both directions, whether she was the older or the younger. At no point in her life did age ever seem to matter. Oh, I agree. Yes, exactly. And also gender. I feel that she was genuinely a person who, you know, the young people now always say, oh, it's the person, the gender doesn't matter. I actually think she was a person who, who was like that. If, if she loved someone if it was Tony or if it was her Vera, her, her art teacher, her she, she sort of poured out of herself towards them and it was everything. It was passion and and joy and laughter and and sexuality. And if the sexuality couldn't be expressed in that relationship, that was okay. It but it was part of it. I I really think that every she fell in love with women as much as with men. She she was a great faller in love, as she said herself. Yes. I'm not sure yes. that's the right phrase. Yes. Yeah. She was well, she fell in love up. frequently and easily, I think one, one would have to say. Anne-Marie, you've obviously poured over the poems for years, I guess. Do you have a favourite poem of hers? 
That's a mean question. (laughs) (laughs) You must have seen that coming. (laughs) I should have, shouldn't I? Well, it's, you know, as you said, she's written so many, so many hundreds that it's really hard. I have, I, I really like the poems from the late period where she talks about her childhood and youth. I, that, they're kind of really straightforward poems in a way. Have you read any of the poems, uh, class of twenty, class of nineteen twenty-seven? Where she, that each one is like a little short story, and they, yeah. Uh, but probably one of those is not of that the class of nineteen twenty-seven. But there's a poem called Resurrection, where she talks about her grandmother, and she talks about the possibility of life after death. And I, I love that poem. I find it deeply pleasurable. There's also, I really love the sea anemones, I can never say that word, the sea anemones, which is about love and it's a really powerful poem about, she talks about the sea anemones and, you know, when you put your finger in a sea anemone, it closes and that little suck, that little touch, she talks about that as she compares it to the the lover's mouth at her breast, uh, the child, the child feeding at the breast, the suck of the child and that. A lover's lips on her hand, and she says That's they're not very flowers. erotic. It, it is, but very light touch. It's amazing to bring all those things together. And then she says the last line is something like they're not, not, not flowers, animals that must feed or die. And that idea that love and desire and the physical, like the child feeding, as a, a kind of a parallel or an echo of, of the lovers meeting, that it's that this is we must feed or die. It's it's food, you know. It's not just an optional extra love. It's a sexual love and, and the love of a child and, and a child and a parent, you know. But I, just, I, I, love, oh. I love that imagery of the sea anemone because, like me, she had a great love of looking into rock pools and that sort of intertidal yes. zone and that sense of discovery and wonder that you have there. And fortunately, at least one of the redeeming factors of Tasmania was proximity to the sea and opportunities for that kind of exploration. Final question. Do you, as a practicing biographer, have a biography that has been a sort of important book in your development as a biographer or that you've used as a kind of touchstone or as a yardstick of the kind of biography that you aspire to write? (laughs) There was a time when I was stuck, when I was pulling, literally pulling biographies off my shelf and looking, how did they do this? How did they, you know, but in terms of, you know, probably my favourite biography, the one that immediately comes to mind is Nadia Wheatley's biography of Charmaine Clift. I don't know if you've read it. It's a huge fat book. Oh, yes, and we've had her on the podcast. Oh, really? Oh, I'll have to go and look for that. I absolutely loved that book. I loved everything about it. It's definitive. It's completely convincingly authoritative, isn't it? It is, and it's everything that I want to know. Sometimes biographies don't, they, you know, that's, I, I always want to know about the inner life. I always want to know. To me, the, the most, you know how they used to say, women's biographies or women's writing is all about the stuff that doesn't matter, but men's are all about the, yeah, like the external facts. I'm the exact opposite. A biography that just tells me the, you know, achievements and accomplishments, oh, I'm so bored. But, you know, I, I want to open up the head and look right inside and that's the joy of a good biography. And and I also love the way she, Nadia Wheatley, creates space. You know, she she's not coercive. She tells you all the facts and lets you draw your own conclusion or 
all the facts, you know, the, the, she gives you the data that she draws from yeah. rather than just giving you the final closed, yeah, analysis. But, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I do read a lot of biographies, but I, I mean, I, I, I stopped reading a lot too, you know. Like I actually, I never really wanted to write a biography because I, I don't like all that boring birth to death stuff, like the childhood stuff. I get bored and, you know, going back three generations, but I felt writing of the, I mean, yeah, exactly. But it, in this case, it was really important, but I, I felt like I had to do it because there's no biography already. It was like a matter of the record. So my first yes. draft was like a third again as long. And my editor was, and you know, I really, really did not want to be boring, what I would consider boring, but I kind of, I, I, to this day, I, when I give it to people who aren't, you know, really biography readers, I'm like, the first couple of chapters are a bit slow because that's just, you know, setting up the scene stuff. But keep going. Don't don't give up too early. You know, it's like, I'm sorry. You know, it's, it's very, that's the kind of biography I want to well, read. I found and, it absolutely compelling, enthralling, captivating. <laughs> it, it brought back to life someone I'd had the privilege of meeting just once very briefly, but I'd loved reading her letters in Blessed City. I mean, I think it's just it's just everything that you say you you found in Nadia's approach to biography, I think you have achieved. I have to say, I absolutely laughed in delight at the fact that she and Cassandra Pybus at one stage were in a ballroom dancing competition and they won the jive section because Cassandra Pybus <laughs> was the first guest on Life Sentences. Uh. Yes. Cassandra Pybus' mother was one of Gwen's close friends when she first came to Tasmania. I know, connections everywhere. <laughs> lovely, absolutely lovely. Oh, thank you it's for those It's been words. a complete delight to talk to you today and congratulations on this wonderful, wonderful, important, necessary biography. There are so many what-ifs in Gwen's story. What if she had left Bill? What if she had gone to live on the mainland or managed to travel overseas? And so many layers of revelation about her secret life, shared with only a tiny handful of trusted friends and lovers. Because My Tongue is My Own is the life of a poet, it has perhaps not found the wide readership it deserves. But it's a universal story in many ways, at least for that generation, of a gifted woman trapped in the aspic of the conventions of time and place, but who manages to break free through her imagination. I especially want to thank John Harwood for giving me permission to use the recording of Gwen reading Barnow. In other biography news, last year I spoke to Eve Langley's biographer, Helen Vines, and I'm glad to see that her book was shortlisted for the Walter McRae Russell Award. I recently heard back from British biographer of the Mountbattens and the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Andrew Lowney, that, having found it impossible to get anyone to talk to him for his proposed biography of the Duke of Edinburgh, he has switched to Prince Andrew as a subject. Not sure that that will be any easier, but he clearly likes a tricky topic. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media. This episode was made possible with a grant from Create New South Wales, and I would like to thank them for their generous support. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to elders and storytellers past and present. Music composed and performed by Amanda Brown. <laughs>